the balance of power has gone back to SME retailer. What, what really chills my boots or, or stresses me out is that most of SME retailers don't realise that. They think they're doomed because they read the papers and it goes doom, 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 doom. And actually, they should be going ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. That's Miriam Simon, retail strategist with one foot in the future. And having spent more than 30 years working in the industry, she's seen huge change in the retail landscape for global retail brands and local one-store independents. She has worked at board level with brands such as Monsoon, Accessorize, B&Q, TK Maxx and Lifestyle Sports, among others. So I wanted to hear her take on how retail has moved and what we can learn from her experience. We dedicate this episode of Your Truth Shared to Miriam's dad, who has passed away since the recording of this episode. I'm Finola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. I'm just reflecting, Miriam, on how long we know each other. Maybe about three or four years now? Yeah, I think so. Must be about three or four years. Yeah. And the thing that's always struck me about Miriam is her kindness, her expertise in what she knows and her ability to find uh, a route for you to take that makes sense for your business, to show you how to take action, what kinds of action to take that will make a fundamental difference. But also she does it in such a way that it's accessible. She's very kind in how she does it. She's very insightful in how she does it. And she absolutely makes a difference. So I had to speak to her in this podcast. And I'm so delighted you've agreed to join us. Ah, that's a lovely thing to say. <laughs> yes, but it's really, really true. You know, I mean, anytime I've seen you in action and we've worked together on stuff, it always comes through. Ah, that's very kind. I can have my scary moments. I, I, I think it's middle-aged womandom. <laughs> I, can have my, I have my scary moments too. Oh. So. What I'd like you to do first is share a little bit about your journey because this is kind of, I think there is something very wonderful about hearing other people's stories of their journey on the entrepreneurial journey, because often when I've been working with clients that the most common piece of reassurance I've ever been able to give a client is it's okay. This is normal. So it's normal for us to face adversity on the journey. This is normal. So when they hear other people's journeys, I think it makes it easier to take your own steps forward. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I'm trying to think because, uh, uh, as you can see from my lovely pallor, it's been a long journey. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm trying to. So, so my my I had a very corporate career, so that, that spanned a lot of years, and I, I had a. I, um, I, I'm going to start right back in the beginning. You're going to be like, you need to get a cup of tea here. <laughs> so, um, what was it? So I I was supposed to go to university to do accountancy and and I had had a fallout with my parents, so I took a job as a trainee manager for Dunn's Stores to raise the the funds to pay for to go to go over to the UK for for the university, 
and uh, we're all friends again, by the way. <laughs> I love it. So, so uh, but you know what it's like when you're a teenager and you're petulant. So, so I took a job as a trainee manager for Dunstall. But perhaps it's also an indication of your bravery. Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe. Mm. Um, so, uh, and and, and Store is kind of beat a work ethic into me that um, has probably stayed with me. So, the, the, you know, they were... You know, it's a business I have a lot of respect for, but it's a very tough business. You know, yeah. and, and and in my corporate career, the minute anybody told me they worked for Duns, I scooped them up because I knew they knew how to graft. I knew that if they worked for Duns, they were good good stock. But so I was with Duns for a few years as trainee manager, and I didn't go to university because at the end of the trainee manager year, and and this is back in the late eighties, and it was about I think my salary was. Nine thousand two hundred and fifty pounds a year. Wow. Now that sounds like nothing, but it was a fortune. Well, I tell you, it's so interesting because you raised that. I remember when I uh, qualified and left college and all that. My first job was with um, it was called S- SKC at the time, so KPMG, and yeah. I was getting the highest entry level salary at the time and would you like to know how much that was <laughs> that was oh, tell me tell me five and a half thousand pounds a year wow. and I was living in Dublin in the center of Dublin and I thought we, I was well, loaded well, this, this, and, and were you able to live on that in, in Dublin I had such a good time <laughs> so I yeah used get, we used to get paid in cash on a Thursday night in a brown envelope and, and, oh, yeah. and then you and in those days I used to, like, there were days where I would rock in, you know, after the weekend out with, like, one line of makeup across the top of my eyebrows. You didn't care. I didn't care. It was just a job to get money. Yes. Um, But at the end of that year, that training manager year, they said, um, give you a 20% pay rise to stay. And I was like, ooh. Wow. So so I stayed. And, And then... I was with them for a few years, and then I went to the I went to the UK to join the Burton Group at the time. Okay, and the Burton Group was uh, was uh, was a fantastic uh, business. So it then became Arcadia, but this is in the days when it was the Burton Group. And they owned everything. They owned Debenhams. They they owned everything, and um, I was with them for the course of about ten years mm. in between the UK and Ireland. And they they educated me. So so they they uh, when when I, I did a lot of work with them. Um I, I worked in Blackpool, I worked in uh Manchester, I did the whole of that northern coast of the UK, Bolton and Burnley and Bury and all the buzz. Yeah. And then I ended up in Manchester on King Street. They had bought a mail order catalogue. I feel so old when I talk about this. They bought a mail order catalogue. This is the pre-websites where mail order was the new thing. Yeah. And um, so they, they bought um, Racing Green and Racing Green oh, yeah. had four stores and three of them were highly profitable and made more money per square foot than any of the stores that the Burton Group owned. But one of them was was hemorrhaging and it had been, it was on King Street, Manchester, and it had been designed by Jasper Conram and it was a high ticket for, for the Burton Group. Uh, and I already had a reputation as a bit of a troubleshooter, as being commercial and hungry and, you know, would get kept sugar honey iced tea done so they put me in there and and the the store did really well we they they and i, I could do a whole other show for you about some of the stories and some of the people we met in there i'd love but that <laughs> the store did really well 
and then they decided to uh, 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 I uh, they I spent a year with them also living in a hotel in London helping them also which was quite nice and then they decided to open two stores in Ireland and so they actually relocated Robert and I to Dublin in the 90s wow. they paid for everything they paid you know they they basically they accidentally put us up in in a juries in balls bridge it was supposed to be juries in but we didn't know that so we were thinking what an amazing company then they put us up in juries they nearly had a heart attack when they got the bill for that week i can tell you but uh they put us up for a week to go and you know explore dublin and they paid uh i think they paid a year's rent um, wow. on a on a two-bedroom house for us they were very very good to us so we moved to dublin then in the 90s and uh worked with them and then um what happened was john horner sold the company to philip green and um the uh, things changed overnight and then at the same time as that happened i was approached by i had just finished my this is how long you have to stay with us so that you don't have to pay us back all of the money for yeah. um i was approached by river island and i took a job as general manager of river island and I, I ran the one in Arnott's to begin with, and then I ran the one at the bottom of Grafton Street. And that was uh, the one at the bottom of Grafton Street at the time took over 20 million a year. It was, a, it, it was, it was the, at one point, it was the number one River Island in the company. And can I just tell you, I've run big companies. That was the most stressful job I ever had was general manager for River Island because it was a very young workforce who didn't care. They were like me and Duns. They yeah. just wanted paycheck and the, and the gear and and it, it was it, it was a very very clever very very commercial business so Duns gave me the work ethic the Burton group gave me the education there is a reason why I'm telling you this no but I find it interesting when you say the Burton group gave me the education what do you mean by the education as in the so, so, so what they did so the Burton group um, were, were very very this was in the days where retailers had money mm. and, and it was at the time in retail it was all about the race for space it was all about expanding and uh, being in every single market and uh, I, at that point I was with Dorothy Perkins and they, they, they it was the Helena Christensen years oh, when yeah. Dorothy Perkins was the number one fashion retailer so they had lots of money. So because they had so many brands and so much money, they, they really wanted to hothouse the future of the business. So what they did was they did like um, a talent scout of all 2,000 managers. And they selected 10 managers out of 2,000 to hothouse. And I was very, very lucky that I was one of those 10 managers. And they put us through um, essentially an MBA programme. Um, and uh, really hot house. And I remember the, the culmination of that program was we had a we had a, a, a feast. We had a dinner in Edinburgh Castle. Was the, yeah. the climax of it. So so um, they put us through this hot house, and it was it, it was called Fast Track to Five. And uh, this was we were we were essentially the future of the business and and the future um, leaders for the big big stores. That's very uh, visionary for of them. It was very visionary of them. Unfortunately, Tesco swooped in and then poached most of them. Okay. <laughs> Out of the 10 of us, there was one person who stayed working with them until recently, actually. Wow. Uh, so so I, I stayed for a while and then and then got scooped uh, a few years later. But uh, So that's what I mean by the education. River Island 
um, one of the most commercial businesses I've ever worked for. So, so to me, before I went in there, River Island to me was a um, posh top shop. It was middle class top shop in my opinion. And um, but actually, it's a family run business, and it's insanely commercial. Very, very, uh, very, very, uh, you know. Uh, serious kudos to the the, the Lewis family there. So um, very commercial and, uh, you know, most of the money comes from the same 50 styles year in, year out. So the, the, the fashion is around the periphery. And, and, and so I learned a lot about, you know, how to really look at where your money's coming from when it was with River. So that there's an yeah. anchor piece and then everything else yeah, breeds so life. Yeah, so so there is so that also, and actually, as somebody in marketing, you would you would probably uh, really appreciate this. There, there's this, there's the you know they say perception is reality. Yeah. So so for River Island, it's a high fashion brand, but actually, there there are very few women in Ireland that don't have one or two pairs of Molly jeans. It's core product, which is where they make their money. Yeah, you know? makes so, sense. So I was with them, uh, and and that was a tough job. It was a very tough job. And uh, because it was a family business, you know, the, the, it, again, it was it was tough going, but uh, really uh, a very very clever business and very very commercial. And then I was poached by Monsoon, which so Monsoon would have, would have been a brand that I would have seen as really out of my league, too expensive, really aspirational. And I was poached by them, and it was my first field roles. I went into them as an area manager, and but what had happened was I'd, I'd obviously at that point got quite a lot of uh, retail experience, and I was good. But like I was very, very good at galvanizing teams, and I was very, very good at uh, I was a, I was a, a bit of a workaholic, which might shock you. So no, I, really. <laughs> So I so I went into Monsoon, and at the time they only had six stores in Ireland, and I think their turnover was about six six and a half million. And I could see because I'd got to know the Irish market, I was like, "Well, oh, we should be here, 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 and we shouldn't be here, here." So I basically um, worked through a five year plan for them, and we grew the business from about six and a half million to fifty four million over five mm-hmm. years. And I, I, I have to say, when I look back to the golden years. That was five most enjoyable years I had in any business. I loved that business. And what I really learned there was how to engage teams and how to grow leaders. So I have to say I've been really, I've had a really blessed life that everything I've done, even the shitty stuff, I've learned loads. Do you know, like it's it's been a blessing. It hasn't been bad. It, some of it might have felt bad when mm. I was in it, but, it, but it, it's, all, it's all been really valuable. But they really taught me about engagement and how to really engage large teams and how to really uh, nurture talent. So, and, and, and they also, that was my first director's role. So obviously I, I was very good for them. So they were very good for me. And, and I remember I had, when I had Robert, when I had my son, they phoned me, I think he was about two days old and they contacted me and said, um, we'd really like you to, to be the retail director but we would really need you to come to a meeting and I was obviously really hungry so I I was back I was back attending meetings within 10 days of him being born I know I was the same it's I wonder is it a is it something that we should look at really as women I mean it comes up all the time I remember being in the hospital um I gave birth on a Friday and on the Sunday I took a meeting in the hospital while I was still in the hospital and, and it is something we should look at. So, so with Monsoon, I had this innate fear that they were going to discount me. 
And and actually, in fact, you know, I ended up, I did take four months maternity leave when I, when I was with them. I did, I attended that board meeting because I wanted to be appointed to the board. So you're bloody right, I attended the yeah, board yeah. meeting. But after that, I took four months off. Good. And I, I didn't uh, go back to work for four months. But I, um, but, but actually... It was no harm for me to be absent because it, it reinforced my value to them. Yeah, you know, they, they they were on their knees to have me back by the time I came back. And the, the only reason I left Monsoon was I found myself, I was visiting uh, some of the managers in Cork and uh, we were booming. We were amazing. We had grown, 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 grown. And we were sitting, uh, and in those days I used to smoke like a lunatic. Uh, <laughs> wasn't it? I, I, I remember sitting in this uh, outdoors, a very European in Cork. I say. <laughs> so, and we were outside, we were having pasta for lunch. And I'm sat there chain smoking and eating pasta, obviously not at the same time. <laughs> I sat there and, and I'm thinking, I'm actually too young to be getting fat and sitting here having big lunches like this. I I, I need more in life than this, mm. you know? Um, so, so what had happened was I'd done a really good job and I'd built this amazing team of talent around me. I had the most amazing team in Monsoon. And, and at a time where it was the boom time for Ireland, so it was impossible to get talent. People were spending fortune on headhunters. I grew all our own talent. Everybody in that organisation knew this is where I want to be, and these are the two jobs to get me there. So I, I was very, very clever at, at um, really nurturing talent. And, 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 and how did you learn that, Miriam? Like, how did you, because you took, it's quite interesting, you took a step, step, step forward. Was it innate in you to always, I know this about you anyway, that you are always want to learn, but that seemed such a very considered trajectory, quite a nice there was no kind of lull periods and your your yeah. what you needed to know at each point you were able to get I kind of I kind of so I think some of it is synchronicity or serendipity or whatever yeah. you want to call it I do believe that we're given what we need when we get the lessons in life as we need them yeah and uh, the the there is a piece of of um, I'm I'm I sort of um, quite alert and I I watch what's going on around me and I could see that you know the 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 whole headhunter uh, you know and I had I have some very good friends who were in retail recruitment at the time and they built their house off you know they 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 you know the, those boom years paid off their mortgages with with re- recruitment fees and I knew that. Monsoon couldn't afford that, so I um, so so there there was a piece of me that I, I, I've always been very uh, aware of, um, and maybe that's where the future piece is. That I'm always looking three steps ahead at the same time as where I am. I'm always thinking of what what what. It's an unusual trait. If you look at the research, the research says one of the things that. Um, business owners and CEOs and C-suite people have a challenge with is marrying short-term actions with long-term vision. So you seem to embody that. I do. And actually, that's what I enjoy the most, that whole um, making it happen now dynamically, but this is what we need to do to get there. I I actually think that's in a nutshell what I do, actually. Yeah. So, so love that with monsoon, but I was getting fat. I was basically smoking 40 Marlboro lights a day, eating pasta for lunch. And I remember thinking, I am too young for this to be it. And I probably could have stayed in that job for life. So, so that, that probably is a defining moment for me where I realized that I need challenge 
I can't, an easy life doesn't suit me. And then at the same time, I was approached by TK Maxx and there was this amazing guy um, called uh, Finlay, uh, Lyle Finlay, his name was. Uh, mm. He's from Bangor in Northern Ireland, actually. And he'd just taken over as their senior vice president. And again, very, very clever guy. And uh, he, he had asked me to meet him and I went to meet him. And um, it, it, I, I didn't like TK Maxx. I wouldn't have been a fan because TK Maxx stores weren't visual enough for me. Do you know, they're, they're, they're a very male um, retail model. So they're, they're, it's very male design and it's very functional. And they're, you know, in those days, they were not as good looking as they are at stores now. Uh, and they're still quite functional now. But I, I went to met this guy for coffee and he was, uh, oh, what would it take for us to get you? And I was like, well, I don't really want to work for you. It's not <laughs> he says, no, 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 but what would it take for us to get you? And I, I think I remember saying to him, oh, 100,000, 100,000 it would take you to get me. And he went, okay. <laughs> Torn between shit, I should have said way more than that. Yeah. <laughs> What's just happened here? Do you know? So I ended up um, joining them as an area manager again, taking a step down and joining them as an area manager. And uh, my at the time, Robert was really young, so he, they sold it to me on the. You'll only have four or five stores. It'd be lovely, all close to home. You'll have such a quality of life. Well, first of all, can I say I did only have four or five stores, but it's an American company. So, so, so TK Maxx, amazing company, operationally, one of the most outstanding businesses I've ever worked for, superb. But it was my devil's advocate moment. They pay you very well and they own your ass. Yeah. <laughs> your phone starts at five o'clock in the morning and it goes on till 10. So uh, at night, it's like a nonstop. It was, it was a real 24-7. And you can't say no. Well, you can't, you can't, well, probably I was too young to realise that I could say no. So there was a bit, a bit of, it, you know, um, the, the good girl in me is, just really wants to please and to do really well. And, yes. And, and now I'm getting old, I'm like, I'm super self more. But <laughs> when I was younger, I was like, oh, I just want, really want to be the good girl. And then what happened? So that was supposed to be an easier job. And then about eight months into that job, they, they came to me and said, ah, we've restructured and uh, you are in the top. So they, they, there was this program for all their field people. And what was happening um, was they were actually gauging everybody and they were they were making long-term decisions, which we did not realise at the time, but obviously in hindsight is a great thing. Um, so what they did, they did this huge restructure and they cleared out a lot of people. And they chose some of us and said, they picked a, a group of us, uh, I think it was four of us, and said, actually, we've been gauging you for the last year. And all of these things you think you're doing for your development, we've actually been checking your emotional IQ, your, right. your, wow. your commercial capability, we've, and, and you four are in the top percentile and so they promoted me to assistant vice president wow so i'm looking after i was looking after the strategy for ireland i was uh you know and deputizing for the the midlands and, and for wales and that was I, I i really enjoyed working for tk it was very high energy i wouldn't be i wouldn't have the energy to do it again now can i just say mm. but it was it was that real uh, that was probably the biggest job i had and, and i ended up I earned very good money. Like I, I, I earned bonuses that were bigger than salaries that I previous had previously had. Um, 
And, and that gave me a lot of, I really knew the Irish market. So I was able to really help them with strategy. And at, at the time, it, this was like 2007, 2008, 2009. So Ireland was on its ass at the time. And I remember we were in the middle of this big financial crisis and I project managed the opening of Galway for them. And Galway, west coast of Ireland, October 2009, took more money on its first day than any other opening in the history of TK Maxx worldwide. And so that that's one of my big... Yeah, you know, bravo. I'm really proud of that because th- that was all about attention to detail, do you know? That's what I was just about to ask you. How? Why do you think you were able to do that? When all, and because it's very it's very appropriate now when we look around because yeah. it's easy to tell a story of making the money in the good times, but you having done that in a time where it wasn't perceived to be possible. So so there was a piece here. So so it's it was about looking for the opportunity. So so first of all, Galway is a university town, it's a young town, it's also a very arty town. So it was about making sure that the stock package match the demographic uh, and, and so that we were very clever uh, but then also even the whole marketing around so so that you know it, it, it isn't like opening a shop in the center of Leeds you know we, we this was our first like getting down into the country of Ireland um, mega store or, or max max as we called them in those days so I, I spoke to the uh, Irish professor in Galway University and asked him to um, uh, translate all the sign, signage in, in Irish, but in the correct Irish for the region, because I didn't know this at the time, but there are so many different yeah. So So, so he, he, they did that. And then the, the, when, when we opened, we, we basically put on a three or four day it was a three or four day opening event. So we did things like um, we had uh, we had buskers all around the town. So we opened in October. So, uh, you know, culture week had just happened. So we, we had buskers all around the town. but And they were busking away, but they were TK Maxx related songs. And when, when the violin case was open, the sign said, save your money for TK Maxx, you know. So we did. We did all these. These are all little touches. We, we. It was massive attention to detail. Actually, this wouldn't really appeal to you as a marketer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then we had we had fake staff. We had real staff as well, but we had fake staff. So we had, we we had these these six ladies would come out in our uniforms, and every hour they'd come out and they'd pretend to be tidy, and then suddenly they would just burst into a flash dance in the middle of. The- oh. And it, at the time, this was like stuff you wouldn't have seen in Galway. This was cutting edge, do you know? So it got massive attention. I remember we were on the RT News on the day of the opening. The shop was like this. And we actually, there was a, another store due to open in Kilkenny four days later. And we had to push that opening two weeks. And we had to basically go in and pillage the store to replenish the Galway store. So very proud of that. So yeah, so I loved, um, I loved TK Maxx. It was very dynamic. They were big stores, like they have a lot, you know, it, it, that is a power, it's a Fortune 500 company. And I I was, um, so I was assistant vice president and I was responsible for the, the strategy for Ireland. And I, 2009, we had our most successful year in the history of the organization overall. So so I think that was a real, um, you know, that, that, that was a, I feel really proud of that because that was at a time when things were not good, you know. So, and, and some of that was about really predicting consumer behaviours also. So, I was like getting into the consumer. So, TK Maxx 
taught me how to predict consumer behavior because I could walk the aisles of a TK Maxx and I could tell you within a few minutes the health of the high street. You could see which businesses were in trouble. You could see which businesses were not. Because if somebody was pushing a load of stock, TK Maxx are opportunistic buyers. They buy um, very cleverly, you know, amazing business, very, very clever. So if, it, you know, when Sasha, do you remember Sasha? Mm. So I remember seeing all this Sasha stock arriving in and I knew Sasha was about to hit the wall because they wouldn't be offloading that amount of stock if if there wasn't something really serious happening. So Wow, that was very unique insight. It, was really unique. it, it really taught me how to be much more observant about what was going on, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes complete sense. I was so, kind of wondering so, outside of how do you teach how do you teach a normal retailer to be that observant that doesn't have your eye? Do you know what I mean? Because the, even the clued in attention to detail piece of guerrilla marketing, you know, that you did to launch TK Maxx, that was incredibly insightful. Even understanding to get some of the Irish translations in, the realising busking, I can do that. I can step out of my box and apply that to market my business. You see, TK Maxx was, because of the size and scale of TK Maxx, so uh, like the flash dancing mob was not my idea. The buskers were my idea. And the the translating, the signage was my idea. And they've done it in every Irish store since, can I just say. Okay. The, the, but the, the flash dance wasn't my idea. But they, they had an amazing marketing team in TK Maxx, uh, generally. Um, so, but it was... It, TK Maxx was one of those businesses where they they I really was able to um, really flex being a being a leader and b getting becoming more of a visionary leader. Would that be the way to say it? Where you're you're able to really talk about the vision and and then there's lots of people that you can pull in to make it happen. Yeah, because and it was because of the seniority of the role, I was able to do that. But so, you were also able to get people to believe you. Yeah, I, I was. You know, I, I, I was. I was. I was actually. That was the put current in the other man's bond piece from my. From Tell my I love this quote. Um, Miriam was interviewed there recently for a very well known um, business publication, business magazine in Ireland, and she tells this quote of what she learned, and it was always put a current in the other man's bun. Do you want to explain that to everyone what that means? I yeah, love it. So, so when I joined Burton Group as a as a very young, you know. Uh, green person looking to I just wanted the title of manager and I wanted to be an area manager before I was 30 and those were my ambitions at the time and uh, but the very first part of the induction John Horner who, who this multi-millionaire who, who, who basically looked like he needed a quid for a cup of tea even though he went everywhere in a helicopter shoot spoke to you for somebody who was in charge of a fashion empire but he, he was an amazing he is an amazingly smart man um, but he he basically spoke to us all as part of our induction and that was a piece of advice he gave us he said um, always put a current in the other man's bond and it's probably the most important piece of career advice I ever had in in my uh, in my years <laughs> um, it's all about um, it's all about if you need somebody to do something for you then you need to approach it from a what's in it for them point of view yeah. rather than a what's in it from you point of view. So, so, and that was really useful. That was especially useful in TK Maxx because I was probably the, you know, people would 
prep for two weeks when I was coming to visit a store. That sounds really awful now when I think of it. When, it, when I think, but, uh, but I was I was one of those. I would be like donuts for everybody. No, I <laughs> but I, I but I would walk the, the store and I would be very right. Uh, we should, we're going to do this and we can do this and we can do this and then I would get them to you know what do you think and you know just bring back the and I would get them to repeat the vision back to me and and I, I used to get teased by my my peers that, that were at my level they used to go you know you've just given them three weeks work and they've just said thank you how did you do that and the, the, the trick like a I don't believe in hierarchies and I don't believe I believe that we're all just people Mm. so so it's about talking to people and B I really believe in in believing in what you're doing and if you're not going to enjoy it why would you do it you remind me of this this great story I did some work with Barnes and Noble in the US a few years ago and I remember um speaking to and I might have told you this story I'm not sure and I remember speaking to the vice president um of the book publishing division at the time and he tells the story that when he was in he doing on his career path that he used to go around and uh, visit Barnes and Noble stores around the country. And the president would take the books and buy them out of his own money in his own card at Till. But he remembers the specific um, thing one day of the, the particular store got very upset because they could see upstairs, this is where they took in Starbucks. And there was a lot of students sitting around, lying around, you know, sitting over a coffee for hours and hours on end. And then being really embarrassed in the store, going, oh, my God, they're sitting around. They're not spending any money and all the rest of it. But they had decided and this the president had said, no, this is exactly what we want. This is the current in those students bun, you know, that idea that if we take care of them now, when they have the money, they will come back and they will spend at Barnes and Noble. Absolutely. So so that's an example of somebody that can see further on yeah. than than the and and t- like TK like I I do you know, do you know I I loved my time there. It was hard slog. I'm not going to lie. It was an intense business, and mm. I think that's the American thing. Mm. You know that, that that whole it felt like it was my devil's advocate moment where I was and and when I was there, I felt very because it was very. It was all about money, that business. Uh, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind me saying that. Um, it was all about, it, obviously it's a business, but it was a, a true American capitalist business, all about money, all about money and, um, and profit. And, um, and and to make myself feel better, I, I started mentoring for Enterprise Ireland at the same time. And um, I started mentoring startups for Enterprise Ireland because I, I wanted to feel like I was still going to go to heaven. So as a non-religious person, I still hope that there is a heaven. But they, they um, so I started mentoring startups and uh, that's what, actually, inadvertently, that was where I started to pivot because it, it, that, that sort of opened me up to non-retail. Yeah. So suddenly I was, I was, I was mentoring startups and, I, and you know, it only take two or, you know, maybe a couple at a time, but that was a bit of giving back. And, and uh, I was doing a little bit of non-exec work uh, um, pro bono. I, 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 at the time I was with uh, Age Action, I think is a, a, mm. a non-exec director and um, helping them. And then uh, I did that work for EI. And then, um, and then when I left, uh, I, I left um, TK Maxx after I had Izzy, 
so so after I had ACLF to come out and I did a stint with B&Q which was very much about getting them ready for examination so that was the short term stint as, as retail director and then I joined Aurora Group which owned Coast and Warehouse and Karen Millen and that again was for the same thing so that they were very strategic pieces of work that were a combination of um, developing the leader and uh, or growing the leadership team and and then strategically preparing for examination which is a a fashion that is uh, about to come back in spades again unfortunately and and then um, with the so so within the, the, those two roles, they, they were sort of like shorter term roles, and then and then I was um, approached by Lifestyle Sports. And they were looking for um, a head of retail, and um, I joined them. You see, I I do think everything that you do is for a reason, and I had three years with them, and I loved it. Now I was too old to work for them. I was the oldest person in the company. I think it was a really young, really agile, really digital, really like nimble business like uh, I'm so impressed CEO the, the chap who owns it Mark Stafford really impressive guy um you know very very clever um really really clever business he, he is uh, you know um and actually our birthday is only a couple of days apart I actually think we're very similar in a lot of ways in that whole looking way ahead at the same time as being focused here so really smart guy learned a lot there um about um I learned that uh, Jaeger bombs are quite uh, not good for you. <laughs> I had to learn how to take the Jaeger bomb and then spit it back into a bottle of beer because I wasn't able for the party that went with that job. I just was not fit for it. What so, made you go? What made you go into having your own business then? And um, partly that I wasn't. I just wasn't fit for it. And then and then my dad got very sick. We were told. Uh, we were told he was very sick and I, I think I had a bit of a, I, I can't, you know, I need, my, and my parents live in England, so I needed the freedom to go and see him yeah. very regularly. And uh, and at this point, I remember we, we, we had been told he was very sick and I immediately started to grieve. Yeah. I, I immediately went, and then it took me a while to realise actually he's still here. And yeah you could do with remembering that so so I left lifestyle and I set up on my own and I didn't have a wit of what I was doing I didn't have a wit I didn't know what I was going to do I didn't know I, I was kind of lost and I was probably still I was probably grieving I know that sounds and, and yeah. I'm still here four years later thank god yeah I'm still here. it's wonderful the, 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 at that point we thought we were going to lose him imminently because we had been told that, that there, were, there were only a certain amount of months so um, thank God he's as stubborn as I am <laughs> still with us. But the, the, um, I love that picture I saw of him with his brother and stuff. It's uh, fantastic. Yes. What was it to say? Uh, the, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that, that was quite recent. Mm. But the, the, um, so, so, yeah, so I, I kind of went into business kind of very accidentally if that makes sense. It, it, it was life circumstances. And then obviously because I was leaving a very senior job, I had to sit on garden leave. So I couldn't do anything for three months. So I, um, so that, so that actually, uh, uh, so there was a couple of things that happened. First of all, I found that I, I actually, I, I was quite clever at the things I knew, but really didn't have very many life skills because I'd always had people to do things for me. So even right down to 
basic skills on word and how to pull together and there were people that did that for me because when i was with tk maxx they were like no no no, you're not wasting your time on that they were very clever at not letting you do the lower level stuff and it was a double whammy because a you were being paid too much to do that stuff yeah and get somebody at a lower rate of pay to do that stuff far quicker than you would ever do it and that's a very interesting that's a very interesting piece to understand from an entrepreneur because entrepreneurs are too slow to do that. Well, they are, and they really are. So, so when you first start out, so, so, but it's that whole ladder of income. Yeah. So it's, it's a very important learn for an entrepreneur. And, um, but at that time, so I, but I went into business and I was like, I didn't have, I couldn't do a basic spreadsheet to work out what I needed. I was useless, useless. So, so it's all of this. You know, I was like a baby giraffe trying to find my way. And at the same time, there was also probably a little bit of me discovering who I was as well. And I remember you and I having a fight and me going, no, I'm not retail anymore. <laughs> not retail. I'm not retail. So I went and I, I qualified. You know, I'd done the Chartered Director Programme uh, in between the two smaller director roles that I'd done be- between uh, doing the B&Q piece of work and doing the Aurora Group piece of work. And before I went to, I did the Charter Director Programme. And so I went and I, I qualified to be a, a, a an executive coach, which I think is a rite of passage now for every, every you know, everybody in their 40s now seems to be doing it. So, so I became an executive coach. And then I did, uh, what else did I do? Oh, I climbed Kilimanjaro. Yeah, I loved that. I, Fantastic. I just climbed Kilimanjaro, you know. Yeah. <laughs> did the marathon, did the marathon. So, so stuff like that. And then, um, but I, I was like a baby giraffe. I kind of didn't know what the feck I was doing. If I'm really honest, I really didn't. And I was looking for client, and I, I, you know, hate the word consultant, and I don't use the word. I hate the word consultant. But when I first started out, I would be trying to get um, consultancy work, and it would be so hard work to get the work. And, mm. and then by the time you'd got the work, you'd already done more work to get the work that the work was worth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, it was so hard. So I, um, I was kind of uh, finding my way for quite a while, and then. Um, Actually, I, I developed a thing called uh, a retail health check and I, I did it for a few retailers for free and said, mm. let me come in and do this for you and I'll do it for free. And that led to my first clients. Wonderful. And then, and then I remember you doing that at the time, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And then and, and I was doing a lot of uh, actually where I made my money probably in the first year more so was the executive coaching because I was I was quite good at it because I'm. I'm quite forthright as the middle-aged Jew in me uh, you know I would be very good at getting that uh, you need to do so I'm more of a just for the record I am more of a mentor than a coach um, <laughs> so so uh, I uh, so but but that's actually what paid the bills for that first year and, and then I, I landed the first couple of proper retainers and uh, at that point I started to learn which bits I could do myself, which bits I couldn't do myself. But it probably took me until year two or three to work out that whole ladder of income piece where why am I wasting my time trying to do this when there is somebody I could pay to do this and they'll do it in a tenth of the time. Yeah. And then that's time that I can spend on my business. So it took me a long time to figure that out. Well, because there's a fear associated with it. There is, there is a fear associated with it. So, so it took me a while to do that. As a, just to give advice to listeners here on that whole ladder of income thing, what would you say is the piece that made you realise that of, of when is the moment to hire? 
And, and do you know that this is really difficult? It's a really hard question because there's that fear. And the, the other thing I noticed when I first went into business was that being a small business is a business. So suddenly everybody wants to meet you, but they're trying to sell you things. Yeah. And everybody's trying to sell you shit that you don't need, that they need to sell you because they've got a small business. Yeah. And, and I think that's why a lot of people don't get the ladder of income thing quicker because they're, everybody's trying to sell to you and sell you things that a lot of it is stuff that you don't need. So I, I think there's a real, I, I was quite naive when I first went into business on my own. And um, I've been, I've had a, I'd had a really lucky corporate career. I never got paid less than any mom because if they wanted me, they paid for me and the story, you know? So I never had that, um, you know, I never had that, you know, I'm, I'm aware that there are issues and, and, and I, you know, when, when I was AVP for TK Maxx, I was female surrounded by men that looked like they were out of reservoir dogs. <laughs> um, and I do get that as a woman, you have to, you have to be quite exceptional to compete with an average guy. Uh, I'm sorry to put the sex sexist bit in here. No, it's good is, to put it in. That is, that is the world that we do live in, unfortunately, and it's changing very slowly. Still slowly. We pretend it's changed, but it hasn't really. But the uh, it's changing very slowly. Um, but the, the, the whole ladder, uh, I think when I first went into business, there were so many people that wanted to have chats with me and, and wanted to sell me stuff that that probably delayed me working out where I needed the help for, for too long. Yeah, but I'll also offer this to you, which is... There are many, and I'm very pro-network because I think it supports supports us as entrepreneurs because it means we're not alone. But there are there are points where entrepreneurs spend too much time networking and not enough time making money. Absolutely. And I'm I'm probably not in very many networks. Yeah. I, I'm probably a little bit of a, a lone lone ranger. And that's more because I'm a bit of a, probably because I'm a, I am a little bit of a workaholic. I work for fun as well as work, if that makes mm. sense. Uh, the, the, uh, but I think you're also very conscious of where is the return? Yeah, maybe. Well, well I don't know. There, there's a lot of women's networks and, and I, there were so many that it, I actually found it too noisy and I didn't know which one to join. So I didn't join any of them. Yeah. Uh, because it was it felt too difficult to choose if that makes sense yeah and then th- there's lots of things that you learn when you first so like i remember being told, being contacted by this business saying you've been nominated as a thought leader you've been nominated like you, you're up for an award i was like oh my god that's amazing and mm. then they said all you have to do is pay us 70 yes to do the due diligence there's all this sort of shit going on so there's a lot of people that do prey on entrepreneurs and and you know so i i think i became th- that first year and a half i i became a little bit um s- s- self-protecting I, I was already in a strange place because i was worried about daddy and i i, I was uh, you know so i i became a little bit i've got to be careful here i've given up a big salary yeah, but I think that's actually very interesting because that statement of, um, I mean, our vision of what entrepreneurs are, I don't think we ever consider entrepreneurs as being prey. I think that's such an interesting statement. And I think it's very true. It, it, I, I actually do think it is very true. And it's really hard. I, I, I do think rather than having a network, there should be an entrepreneur buddy system. Yeah. 
rather than network because like like you know Jan, a really good friend of mine and we, we we're like work wives for each other really yeah we sort of kick each other's asses and hold each other accountable well I, I might just even add to that I mean that's I have a, a group of three very driven uh business owners that I meet with every week and we and it and it just raises your game yeah it does it does raise your game it does raise your game. Uh, so, so I think networks are imp- very important, but you need to be really careful about which ones you choose. Yeah, and how active you are. And how active, yeah. And you have to, in the, and let's also say, because I know you would, because I know this about you, even even from the current Bon idea, that when you're in the network, you do have to give to receive. I mean, that's automatic. We've got to make that very clear in order to to progress. We do have to give in order to receive too. But we don't have to give to a point where we have nothing left for ourselves. And and do you know what? That that was something also I, I was finding that I was very I wanted to give because I'm I naturally like to think that I'm helpful, do you mm. know? So and I would give a lot and give a lot and give a lot and then I would forget to ask for anything. Yeah. Then I would be really pissed off that nobody was thinking about me. But, yeah. But, you know, but, but, but actually not realising that I was orchestrating that. Yeah. It's a really, we have to be much more conscious in our actions in our business. Let me ask yeah. you now, as I, I would love to hear your thoughts as I watch you on LinkedIn and places. I really see your space around the future of retail. I hear you see you speaking about this a lot. I see you speaking a lot about, well, what happens after COVID. And I'd love, if you were okay with that, to share your thoughts on that idea of the, because I remember a year ago or a year and a half ago before COVID started, we were having conversations and we were talking about what was going to happen with retail at the time. And you predicted a lot of what happened, but it was predictable for five years down the line. And what happened is COVID brought it all front and centre of what 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 we're experiencing now and I'd love you to share with everyone what those ideas were yeah and what's well, next at the beginning of last year I was doing um some webinars as part of uh, enterprise week actually I, I actually I got reminded of this in the in the, the recent enterprise week the the um and I was talking about future emerging trends and models in retail. And I was talking about what was coming down the track. And I was talking about the whole, you know, uh, circular economy. And uh, and the, the uh, one of the big things I was talking about was the commuter culture was on its way out. And this was probably quite a controversial view at the time. So I, I do a lot of um, coaching with the European Innovation Council mm. as well, So uh, and, uh, which is a fund for really highly disruptive technology so like med tech inventions or things that will change banking or the infrastructure of how we live in some way and uh so i do a bit of coaching for for companies that have been granted funding and and, and i also um i'm on a, a bit of a panel for where we support businesses that are, have got through to the finals to get that funding from from the eic and uh that actually really played into the whole future piece because it gives me a really good insight of how we're going to live mm. in the future because you see a lot of these innovations and inventions coming and and the the whole point of the eic is to fast forward them and, and to give them Big, this is funding where they're going for millions at a time. So, um, so, so that gives me great insight. So, I was doing this talk where I was talking about circular economy, and I, I was talking. This was at the beginning of pre-pandemic, where I was talking about uh, commuter culture, and I, I said commuter culture is about to die, and it was a very controversial 
opinion. And, and the reason why I was saying it's about to die was was nothing to do with the pandemic, because at that point we didn't realise what was about to hit us. Um, it was because of um, the whole circular economy piece and also generational shifts in consumer behaviour. Explain so, what the circular economy is for everybody. So the circular economy is this whole piece around, it, it's the David Attenborough effect. Hmm. It's this whole piece about we need to save the world in order to save ourselves and things need to be, we're, we're, we've been consuming far too uh, heavily for too long and there's a lot of things like, uh, you know, um, chocolate fountains. Who needs to own a chocolate fountain? You might use it twice in your life or, you know, an electric screwdriver. You know, there, there'll be lots of products in the future that we rent short term rather than buy. And, and same with clothing, you know, it's all about recycling and reusing and uh, uh, much more so. But where where the whole commuter culture dying comes in as part of that is that this whole, um, you know, I'm Gen X. So like I, I would have prior to the pandemic spent two hours in traffic in the morning to drive to Dublin. And I would have spent two hours in the traffic driving home because Dublin is where the heart of everything is. And, and so that would be four hours of my day spent really unproductively in a car. But because I'm Gen X and was, you know, and work for dumb stores, work ethic beaten into me, I, I just do whatever it takes to deliver for a job. So so I I, I would, you know, I, I grew up with that being normal. But the generations that have come up since would not dream of spending three and a half to four hours unproductively sat in a car, you know, and give that amount of their life away. And they probably watched their parents do it and went, yeah. I don't want to do that. They're far too smart for that, any of that. So, so, so there's, it, this isn't just, so that's the first thing is there's this generational shift where people are just not going to wear that anymore, the young people coming up. And then second to that, you've got the whole environmental pressure. So if you think we were all told to drive diesel, diesel is great, diesel rocks. Now diesel is, diesel is the devil now. Yeah. So, but there is, all, there are already, um, there are already innovations out there that are already being sold to governments all over the world, may I say, and I know this for a fact, that are already being sold, that will actually tax us on our carbon footprint, that will tax us on the way we drive, how far we drive. Well, this is interesting because I remember you telling me this at the time, this idea yeah. of a personal carbon front footprint. So, uh, Within this decade, we will be personally taxed on our carbon footprint. Mm. I categorically, uh, I, I'm stating that here today. <laughs> In this decade, we will be taxed personally on our carbon footprints. And the technology is, is, is emerging at a rapid rate to make that happen. And if you think what's happened with the pandemic, it's a little bit like what happened with the Spanish flu. What's happened with the pandemic is there are lots of really, really clever people that have been locked up for a year. Mm. So innovation has gone 10 speed. Yeah. So, so, um, so what, so go back to the whole, I said, uh, commuter culture is about to die because you're going to have this environmental pressure alongside this, this new consumer growing up, um, who is like, what do you mean spend four hours in a car, uh, four hours a day in a car? Why would I do that? Are you insane? So there's two, there were two forces there that were going to cause that in this decade anyway. And then the pandemic happened and it happened in a day. Yeah. <laughs> it happened in a day. Yeah. And I remember getting a phone call from uh, the lady from the, uh, the, the, the enterprise office going, how did you know? <laughs> I love that. I wasn't that good. I wasn't that good. But they, they, but 
uh, it's never going to go back to the way it was before the pandemic. But you know what you just sparked in me now? Um, your history of always looking, uh, always looking of what's next, the trends, the patterns of looking around you and then really crystallizing much more recently in the last year, you could really, really see it. But it also sparking in me this idea that this is not this idea of looking for the opportunity and looking for the trends is not just for people like you and me. It is actually for every single business owner, front and center, because so many people were caught unprepared. And from as a marketer, one of the most interesting things, especially when I... Myself included, can I just say. But this idea of, I have to talk to you about market research, is kind of interesting to me now because I would advocate that people watch trends. There's stuff like trendwatch.com. There's lots of kind of very accessible market research that look at trends in society. Even things like in Ireland, most government departments, this could be all around the world. Most government agencies do market research to look at the trends. And many small entrepreneurs never read those because they think it's not for them. And what this, this conversation is saying to me is we as entrepreneurs, no matter what size we are, we don't have to be the TK Maxx's and the Dunn's and thinking of forward thinking like that. We actually need to look at that to protect our businesses so that we can move as fast and actually faster. And actually, if I if I pull this back to retail, the, the, so there's two things that have happened over the last year. Um, from a from a point of view, well, it's more than two things. But even if I take it down to an SME retail point of view, that a lot of what's happened has been about where people's heads are. Mm. So so and, and and it is the old Charles Darwin thing. If you're if you have the ability to or adaptability, you're going to survive, and if you don't, you won't. So there is, you know, there are some people that have basically gone home, pulled the shutters down, and are saying, "Let me know when it's over." Yeah. And those people are not going to make it. No. Categorically, they're not going to make it. But there are lots of businesses that have been really nimble on their feet. And, and you know, I, I've talked to many businesses that took more money in 2020 than they took the year before. Yeah. Because they were nimble on their feet. So there are lots of businesses that were nimble and that looked for the opportunity. And um, the trick is to have spent this time looking at what's next. And, and you can make educated, like most of what I do is making an educated guess. It's about joining the dots and, and yeah. the way things are going. And actually, I think the government could do with doing a little bit more of that. Mm. Uh, you know, at, at the moment, we're still in this really short term. We're, we're missing an opportunity because actually, if we, if we were a bit clever about using this time, we actually we should be doing infrastructural stuff to move this country on in leaps and bounds but actually we're in the we're too in the now do you know what I mean yeah because there's a danger of us clinging to the past and for when this will be over instead of realizing that we are forever changed by this that's the reality we are forever changed by this and and this will never be really over so Mm. so so this is you know so so what will happen is there will be a boom coming out of this so uh, you know from there will be a boom so if you think back to the Spanish flu I, I say that as though I was alive in the Spanish Railway. <laughs> you say it like it was 10 years ago. My son, Sean, talks about it. You know that he said, he <laughs> he said, of course there's a pandemic. We have it every 100 years. <laughs> but shorter now. The, the, but the pandemic, the Spanish flu led to the roaring 20s. Let's not forget that. Mm. 
So there was three years in, in, in the Spanish flu, it was three years. Um, uh, and I was thinking we'll be much quicker because we have technology. It feels like we might not be much quicker <laughs> despite the technology. But there was three years of this intense. People were, you know, confined. Um, you know, there was the real worry and austerity. And then people went mad partying. Yeah. The decade after and not just that the amount of innovation that came out because you had these clever people locked up with nothing to do but thinking and actually work on stuff so and, and we're seeing exactly the same thing happen again so what's happened we've had nearly a decade of a decade of digitalization happened last year yes like, you know what was it I, I put a post up the other day the around the number of dot ies that were let me find it the number of dot ies in ireland in one year last year was was tremendous. Um, I think I actually put the there were sixty five thousand one hundred and thirteen new dot ie domains registered in Ireland in twenty twenty. That's about five times what's normally registered. Wow. So so like so the 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 whole where it isn't get a website now you're done. We're right at the beginning of this new. This is like. We're entering a new digital age now, and we're right at the beginning of it. If, if that makes sense, we're right, right at the beginning of it. Um, so that's interesting. And as somebody who's completely pants with anything technological, I probably talk about technology too much. But the, the um, we're right at the beginning, and, and the whole way we the, our, our behaviours as consumers have changed for good as well. I know I keep talking about humans as consumers, but that's because of the retailer. Yeah, yeah. But we're, we're changed for good. So if you think 80% of everything we buy is replenishment. So we're going to, that, that's going to become digitalized. But, and the other 20% is emotional. So that, that will still be, we're still going to need the store experiences. So the stores that make it are going to be the stores that focus on the experience. The emotional connection. It's interesting as a model for the retailer to look at 80% replenishment and perhaps that's the purpose of your website and 20%, you must dedicate 20% to that experience to actually help the replenishment piece. But even more than, uh, it's not just the, the, the thing of your website. Um, so so it's massive opportunity. So so subscription is, is going to be, yeah. subscriptions are going through the roof. So yeah. it's all about subscriptions. Um, but also, um, the, the the whole um the whole way the consumer is buying what we're seeing is we're seeing retail is merging with um with media so so it's it's all like um it's it's kind of all becoming very blurry you know so so like if you look um i think nike uh, uh, you can now buy nike sneakers in a game you know, you, you you pay and sneakers are on your character in the game. You're buying a pair of digital sneakers, you know. You yeah. don't own them. They're just on your character. So we're seeing gamification of retail. It's and we had it maybe 10 years ago we had it, but it never peaked. Not like see, it will now, now. Now we're all confined and we're all doing this all day. Yeah. Know? So so TikTok. So, so there's, mm. uh, there's a chap, um, he's in my book. A chap uh, called Kevin, uh, who he's the only retailer that I've actually named in the book, so I'm going to call him Kevin. A really lovely man that uh, owns a, an electrical store near 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 me in Trada, and uh, he is really genteel gentleman. 
you know, really nice man. Mm. Second gen, the business is 75 years old. He's been behind the counter for 42 years. And, and he, he is, if you were to look at him, you would say, proper old-fashioned gentleman. Sorry, Kevin, if you ever see this. Proper old-fashioned gentleman. Um, one of the most nimble people I've ever met. So he, he's really pivoted, adapted his business. He got his website up and running. He's on social media. He's traded his pants off this last year. Um, he's opened a TikTok account a few it. weeks ago. And he, he did this whole, uh, uh, he did this TikTok and uh, I'm smiling about it because I was telling somebody about it. And he was selling um he was selling electric blankets. And I was telling somebody about this and they went, you know when you get that moment where you realise that, you're not no longer the young generation. And the person I was talking to said to me, What's an electric blank? No. Oh. <laughs> wow. Oh Jesus, I feel really old. And actually Kevin was it, this was in a live Q&A and Kevin was in the audience. And all, and then there was this message from Kevin coming up through the messages going, Sold out of them, mind you. No. <laughs> so, he was on TikTok. His first TikTok got thirty two thousand views. Wow. Because TikTok is completely um, democratic. Yeah. It's not owned by Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. It's completely democratic. So so TikTok, if you're if you're not on TikTok, get on TikTok. Fantastic. Um, would be my, my my tip there. So so yeah, so it's it's gonna be I think even forgotten what it was you asked me there, Finn, and I went off with so many things. Oh well we were talking about the future, what's happening for the future and what will happen about you know, post COVID and I was talking about market research and looking, being able to see the patterns and that it's not just for the big clients, big uh, companies. It is for your small entrepreneur too. Oh, it is. And actually the SME retailers, we've seen a complete switch in balance power. So it used to be that the big guys had all the power, the likes of Arcadia Group and Clarks and Debenhams, and they had all the power. And they're the ones that are in the shit show now. Mm. Because what happened back in the 80s and the 90s was that race for space. So, like, I remember when I was with Dorothy Perkins, at one point we had 543 stores across the UK and Ireland, which is ridiculous when you think about it. But it was all about we want to be everywhere. And it doesn't matter if if 40% of the chain is not profitable. And actually, that was the mentality. So, and, and those guys are the guts that have been the first to go. Because just like if a human has underlying health problems, they're very susceptible to COVID. If you are in business and you have underlying health problems, you're very susceptible to COVID. So so Debenhams is going whether COVID happened or not. Deb- it, it, may, it, it may have just gone six months later. You know? yeah. Arcadia was running on, on, on fumes. You know, the, the money had been pulled out of that company years before. So so what we're actually seeing, and it's really important that we don't watch this whole catalogue because it's it's like uh, it's like reading obituaries every time you read the retail press these days. Um, these are all businesses that, that were in big trouble anyway. So it's really important that the SME retailers don't see that as being them because actually what's happening is the SME retailers have got all the power right now. So if you think Dublin and Cork and Limerick and Galway, they've all decentralised. So there are more people living in the arteries of the country and being in the arteries of the country than ever have been before. So there's more people walking past those properties than ever before. So, you know, and and actually as a small retailer, you can be more connected to the customer. You can actually, you know, properly connect with the customer. So so the balance of power has gone back to SME retailer. What, What really chills my boots or or stresses me out is that most of the SME retailers don't realise that. 
they think they're doomed because they read the papers and it goes doom, 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 doom. And actually, they should be going ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching because actually the balance of power is with them. And even with doors closed, the balance of power is with them. I love that. That's a really great way to end this conversation, that the balance of power is with the SME. That's it really, it really is. fantastic. You have to share with us all now where we can find you because I know you have a book coming out and I know you have a wonderful um, a website that features some of the ways that people can work with you. So share with everybody, please, where they can find oh, you. I always forget to do this. Bit. So so um, the website is pto.ie. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, um, we have also got a group. We have a, a group called the Retail Powerhouse. Which I think is amazing, Miriam. Yeah, which is, that's been really good. That That's something that has come out of the pandemic, mm. so the Retail Powerhouse. But it's a group of about... 40 or 50 retailers, between, it, it, it fluctuates between 40 and 50 retailers. And uh, that is really where the power, it's the strength uh, of, of the group to, to help everybody trade really well. And um, and within that, we do we do like masterclasses. So we had like a, a TikTok masterclass recently, the next one it. is an Instagram masterclass. So we do a monthly masterclass. There's Q&As with myself every week. And it's very much about... Um, making sure that everybody gets through this and, and gets through it with a strong business. So that's aimed at the smaller SME retailers. Um, and then uh, the book is called, um, it's called Retailing Through Uncertainty, Time to Thrive. And that um, you can get that. If you go onto my Instagram page, the link is at the top of my Instagram page, uh, underscore PTO. But um, it, that's from a website called Mona. Um, mo.na slash Miriam uh, and that's on pre-sale at the moment it's on pre-sale at the moment and will be uh, uh, launched uh, later this month so I'm excited Wonderful. about that so excited it'll be amazing I'm going to get a, an advanced copy immediately so thank you so much for your time Miriam it's been amazing thank you so much oh no I love talking to you sorry if I talk the legs off <laughs> no wonderful I love it you know me Cool. (laughs) Have a great day. You too. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about Miriam, check out her website at miriamsimon.ie. And if you'd be so kind to share this episode with someone you know who would find it valuable, I would greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to reach out to me about the podcast or anything else, connect with me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Fanola Howard. And I'll be back next week with another great guest. And until then, take care.